looking at Cain and Abel. There are stories in Genesis 4, if you'll turn there in your Bible, if you haven't already. Genesis 4, we started this last week. And there are references to Cain and Abel as well in the New Testament. And those references contrast the the faith-believing of Abel with the faithless way of of Cain. And we're not going to read uh, Genesis 4 in its entirety this morning. Uh, what I'm going to do is, is we, we read the story last week. We've, we've got the gist of it. So what I'm going to do is just point out pieces as we come to them. Most people know this story. This, this story is a tale as old as time. But, but how do you tell it, the Cain and Abel story? Do you tell the story as, you know, one brother was good and the other brother was bad? Uh, do you call Cain a, a bad seed? Uh, that's not how we should look at it. We should look at it as one brother responds to God in faith believing, and the other brother resists God to the point of resenting God. And when you resent God, as Cain did, anything is open to you, including killing your brother. Cain passed the resentment onto his line. Now, not genetically, but when you read the whole chapter, if you read all the way down to verse 26, which I, I hope you will at some point, if you look at the whole story, Cain's line, and chapter 4 gives us Cain's line, and they are builders, they are artisans, they are very accomplished people, but they live in their resentments, and they live by their resentments. So that you've even got a descendant of Cain uh, making this little rhyme about if, you know, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. They lived in resentment. They lived by their resentments. And they accomplished a lot, as I said. But it was the accomplishments of people who have this eternal chip on their shoulder. Even though God offered their forefather a second chance at grace. And note that in the story. Let's pick it up in verses 6 and 7 if you're looking at Genesis 4 where the Lord says to Cain, verse 6, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain was not denied grace. It was there for his taking. After he got the sacrifice wrong in some way, as he did, and and he still refused God's grace. And, and Cain was not denied God's mercy either. Look at the second half of the chapter. When, when God holds him accountable for killing Abel, as we all know he did, he says down in verse 13, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wander on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But God says in verse 15, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. That's a strong negation in verse 5, not so. It's as if God is saying to Cain, why do you tell yourself that you're hidden from my face? You've never been hidden from my face. And even now in your consequence, you're not. But Cain is so consumed by resentment, he will not see things any other way. Someone will kill him and it will be God's fault then. He's still engaging in the blame. Cain would not accept what Richard Sibbs 
would say centuries later that there is more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in us. We talked about last week the divergent paths of these brothers. The way of Abel being the way of belief and the way of Cain being the way of disbelief. I won't go back through that and the minor distinction I tried to make between unbelief and disbelief in Cain's case. But we're looking at Cain and Abel. Why? In order to apply what we learned in Romans chapters 4 and 5 about why the doctrine of faith matters. And so we're just taking three Sundays with this old story. And then we'll go back to Romans. The last Sunday of this month, we'll get back to Romans chapter 6 through 8 as its own series. And in that series, we'll talk about why grace matters. Romans 1 to 3, we talked about why sin matters. Romans 4 and 5, why faith matters with a punctuating series on each. And then why grace matters. Romans chapter 6 through 8 to follow this. Last week, it was Cain and Abel both. This week, I want to take just Cain, and then next week, just Abel. Last week, Cain and Abel both. The way of Abel is the way of believing faith. The way of Cain is the way of disbelieving. Today, we're going to look at how Cain shows us our need for Jesus. And then next week, we'll put Abel in that same slot, how Abel shows us our need for Jesus. Each one does in a primary way. In Cain's consideration, he shows us the need for Jesus. It has to do with our identity. And in Abel's consideration, it has to do with our security. How we construct our identity, where we put our security, both are faith involved. In Cain, we're going to consider the identity piece today. In Abel, next week, and we'll go to Hebrews 11 for this next week, where Abel is mentioned, and we'll consider the security piece. But today, we're just going to look at Cain. Well, not just at Cain, because we're looking at how Cain shows us our need for Jesus. We need to see Jesus behind Cain's shoulder, as it were here, but Cain brushing his hand away. God is intricately involved in Cain's life. The tragedy of Cain is repeated through the centuries to the present. Because what we see in Cain is it's not this just awful guy. He did something horrible. He did. But what we see in Cain is something, whatever happened to him, can happen to us. And what seems to have happened to him is that he constructed his identity out of comparison when we compare ourselves to others rather than constructing our identity out of our redemption, out of God being for us in Christ. It's very easy to engage in comparisons. We do so all the time. It's a shared world. We're constantly taking uh, measurements of ourselves uh, against others. It comes natural. And comparisons don't always, they're not always malignant. They don't always have to descend into rivalry or worse than that. Sometimes we even learn from comparison. Sometimes we're bettered by comparison. We, we compare ourselves and we realize, you know, I could be doing more of that. And, and it sets us on a course for improvement or even repentance. But most of us get, most of us accept I don't think I'm talking to, to any true narcissists or egotists in the room here. Everybody but the, but the most narcissistic egotist gets that someone will always be better than us at something, even if we're pretty good at it. Uh, case in point, I was uh, this week uh, down in the uh, fitness room. I had the TV uh, uh, on here uh, in the church room and... I was watching something on the NFL Network. They were doing the the hard knocks training camp. 
Uh, and then some ladies from church walked in. I was embarrassed because they're bleeping out all the things, you know, that the guys are saying. It's a pretty rough crowd. And, uh, but they were nice to me, those ladies from the church. Um, they realized I wasn't the one saying all that on screen. But it is awkward, you know, as a pastor. You're like, well, well I'm just I'm watching football kind of way. And they were running on the ticker at the bottom of the screen, uh, the top 100 players in the network's estimation. I mean, what else does the NFL network have to do this time of year but generate lists uh, like this? But you think about it, the NFL is the best of the best football players in the world. It's, it's the elite of the elite in their positions. And yet the network generates this top 100 ranking. Who is the best of the very best who are currently playing? Why do they do that? Well, to give fans who care too much something to talk about, really. But they also do it because it's just a natural thing to do. It's very human to do, even in the upper echelons of achievement, these comparisons get made. But in this very human impulse, we also locate our need of Jesus because if we build our identity out of comparisons rather than his provision of himself to us, rather than God being for us in our redemption in Christ, we open ourselves to being driven by the same kind of envy and anger that filled Cain and then fueled his resentment toward God and his acting out toward Abel. With this in mind, how does Cain show us our need for Jesus? Well, two ways. It's by way of his envy and by way of his anger. Cain is a negative example. Abel will be a more positive one next week. But if we construct our identity, Cain talks to us about our identity, Abel about our security. But if we construct our identity out of comparisons, rather than God's provision of himself to us, rather than everything he's promised to be for us in Jesus, his redemption of us, if we construct our identity out of comparison rather than redemption, then we open ourselves to the domination of anger. Think about it. To put this in Huffmanese, uh, God says to Cain, I'm for you, Cain. Why are you against me? And Cain essentially says, because you, you, you regard, that's the word in the text, you, you regard my brother Abel in a way you do not me. <clears throat> and it stokes all this resentment. Now, that wasn't exactly so, because again, look at it in the text, verse 7. God gave Cain a second opportunity to do well. Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Which in that context, doing well seems to mean, at least the plainest inference to draw from the story, is approach God, doing well in this context, is approach God according to the way God wants to be approached. Look at the way he drew your parents back to himself after their sin. Look at what Abel is doing and drawing near for his sin. That's why you make a sacrifice. It's through blood. The issue wasn't that Cain didn't know this, but that he would not do this. Now, I'm, I'm staying with a, a very traditional interpretation in giving you this. You can read some modern commentaries that will take a little different tack on that and will say that the... Uh, uh, Saying that Cain didn't come by blood has been discredited now and, and nobody thinks that anymore. Well, I still think that and so I'm somebody and I'm here with you and so I'm telling you what I think. 
I, I think that's the best way to read uh, the passage. It's, it makes the best sense of what goes on in the New Testament when these two are invoked and looked back on. But the issue, again, wasn't that Cain didn't know. It's that he wouldn't do. He resisted. He refused. Neil Plantingen, one of his books, has a very memorable line. He puts it this way. A poisonous little fire is eating Cain's innards, and his terrible conclusion is that only his brother's blood can put it out. Cain was envious. The envy fueled by the anger that the text names for us there in verse 5 But for Cain and his offering, verse 5, he, God, had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And God meets him at that point in verse 6 and calls attention to it. What Cain does to Abel in verse 8, that's the action of an envier. But anger fuels it. And the only one who can put that fire out in us is Jesus, specifically by his blood. Now we'll come back to Cain's anger here in verse 5. We're going to take his envy first. His murderous envy is the outworking of that anger. So let's talk about envy first and then the anger. I've been saying that Cain's identity is constructed in comparison to Abel. This is the suggestion of a Croatian scholar Named Miroslav Volf, he wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace, a very fine theological study of all the ways that we are repulsed uh, from people and, and what is exclusion and what is embrace. And uh, it's just a, a fantastic work. And in that book, he talks about Cain and Abel. And that Cain, being as capable as he was, because chapter 4 shows us this is a very capable man. The ground yields for him. He builds a city. His descendants do all of these fantastic cultural things. They're culture creators. Cain is a capable man and yet still in some way needed to, needed to consider himself better than Abel. Now we don't know if that's so or why it was so. I'm saying that Wolf has a, has a very credible take on this, I think. Perhaps it was that uh, Cain made the land produce. You know, when Cain dealt with the land, something came out of it, whereas Abel comes by with his, with his flocks and they just, you know, graze all the grain that, that Cain is growing. I mean, Cain may feel that he's the, the real provider here. We don't know that. But again, I, I find the, the suggestion credible that Cain derived his sense of identity from being more and better than his brother, or at least needing to be. I think this is a credible way of looking at it, whether or not Abel was competitive with him in return, Cain seems competitive. And competitive people can do a lot of good with that drive. This healthy competition, certainly there is. Innovations we prize today come from very high achieving people who were able to find it, that thing, and and make it happen. And we sing their praises today. But when that drive drives me, when it requires that I engage in continual comparison to keep or find an identity, I'm setting myself up for an anger that I cannot control. And it will burn at anyone who doesn't validate me the way I think I need to be, including God. It does seem Cain had to be the better one. 
It does seem that perhaps Cain thought himself better such that when God has no regard, that's the term in verse 5, no regard for Cain's offering, Cain has a choice. Now, he can take the correction from God and go to the work of changing the way he's constructed his identity. He can take inventory and say, you know, something needs to change here because that's God and I'm not God. And, and God has met me again and has said, Cain, I'm really actually for you, son. Come to me in the way that I want you to come to me and it's going to be fine. But instead of taking the correction, he doesn't do that. He instead continues to construct his identity in relation to Abel, and he goes to destroy Abel's identity. He takes Abel out into a field, and he kills him. And this, again, there in verse 7, after the second opportunity at God's grace. Cain wanted the blessing that Abel got. Look at there, there in the end of verse 4. The Lord had regard for Cain, for, for Abel in his offering. End of verse 4. The Lord had regard for Abel in his offering. This is why Cain, why does Cain come to the place of sacrifice in verse 3? He wants the blessing. The New Testament writers say, looking back on this story, that Cain was evil. And yet you have to understand that evil is a self-righteous kind of evil. And this is why Jesus refers to Cain indirectly in the text that I shared with you last week when I was reading where these brothers are in the New Testament. I read you a little portion of Matthew 23 where Jesus told the Pharisees they would answer for the blood of Abel. How come them? Because the Pharisees in their self-righteousness were evil in the same way that Cain was. Self-righteous evil. Do you know what envy is? It's different from jealousy. It reaches further. Envy doesn't just want what you have. The envier despises you for having it. Shakespeare gave a classic expression of this in Othello when he has one of the characters say, He hath a daily beauty in his life that makes me ugly. It's the envier's refuge. I can't have the beauty. I'm on the outside looking in of whatever it is. And so that person makes me ugly in comparison. And so the envier has to go to destroy that person in some way. What did Abel have? What did Abel have? He had God's blessing. The story says so. Cain wanted it too. But he was denied it on the first pass because of his resistance to God. The envier will despise the one who has what he wants and can't get it. And the envier either needs to make a course correction, receive the correction from God, from Scripture, from a trusted person who says, hey, I I think you've just got a lot of envy here and you need to get through this. You have to make that course correction or the envier will set a course on destruction, destroying in some way. The one he envies. Let me give you another biblical story that goes right along this same line. David and Saul. When they returned from David's defeating Goliath, the new hit song in the land is David has... They're singing this in the streets. David has slain his tens of thousands. Saul has slain his thousands. Probably to the tune of the killer's Mr. Brightside. (laughs) Those of you who know that song enjoy that reference. It's a song about envy. 
In the David and Saul story, the text says Saul eyed David from that day on. And that is such a descriptor. He eyed him. The envious eye, it doesn't rove around. It fixes. It targets. When David played the harp for Saul, then what did Saul do? Try to destroy him. How? He's playing the harp for him. And he takes his spear and he tries to pin him to the wall with it. And the text says David eludes him every time. Here in our story, when God says to Cain, verse 9, Where is Abel your brother? And Cain says, I don't know. You think I'm always out looking for him? God knows that's all Cain's been looking for. Because he envies his brother, Abel is all Cain could see. Envy bears resentment that way. It's jealousy that's moved over toward a a resentment that not only can you not have what I want, but I despise you and and I want to destroy you for having it. Envy also engages in something called resentiment. And that's here too, resentiment. You ever heard Aesop's fable about the fox and the grapes? It's one of his most familiar ones. You know, the little fox is going along. He sees the ripening grapes above him on the branch. And he just can't reach the grapes. He tries with all his might. He jumps and he jumps. And when it dawns on him finally, he's not going to be able to get them. He convinces himself what? I didn't really want them anyway. In fact, he goes even a step further. He says they were probably sour. That's resentiment. Cain wanted the blessing of God. Why else go to the place of sacrifice as he did in verse 3? But the blessing would not come to him by way of Cain doing things his way. It would come by him doing things God's way. But Cain wouldn't take that way. We don't know why not. Only that he wouldn't. And God did not regard, that is look favorably, receive Cain's grapes. But that doesn't mean he would never. In fact, I told you last week, it, it's, it's, not the, it's not so much the content of the sacrifice, it's the bypass of it. But the Mosaic law is going to come around a few centuries later and it's going to require grain and fruit offerings. Cain had to rectify whatever it was that was wrong in his heart and that was through faith. That was through belief. But notice verse 8. When Cain speaks to his brother about going out in the field, Abel trustfully goes. Cain kills him there. This after the reoffer of grace that I've mentioned multiple times. Verse 7. Why? Because in choosing to kill Abel, Cain essentially says back to God, I never wanted your blessing anyway. He resentiments in his resentment. What he says is, I'm not a believer. I won't be. You can't make me be. I know you're there, but I will not believe you. Because Cain constructed so much of his identity in relation to Abel, he couldn't handle God giving Abel something he would not also give Cain just for Cain being Cain. And this lit the pilot light of destruction in Cain's heart. Envy, when it starts to burn, it becomes consuming, it rages. Eventually, a poisonous little fire is eating at Cain's innards. And the terrible conclusion he makes is that only his brother's blood can put it out. That's the envy. And now the anger. 
The text tells us directly that Cain was angry and that his face fell. Verse 5 says it twice. For Cain and his offering, God had no regard. Verse 5, so Cain was very angry. His face fell. The Lord said to Cain, verse 6, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Now, his face falling conveys uh, depression. And I realize there's a clinical aspect to depression requiring treatment due to chemical imbalance. I've been there myself. I, I know this firsthand. Though we have the mind of Christ, as Paul puts it, the brain is a bodily organ and susceptible to illness. So it is, it is highly regrettable that some Christians have stigmatized depression as it results from, from chemical imbalance. When I say depression as regards Cain, his face falling, I'm not coming at this clinically. I'm coming at this as a pastor who has noticed in pastoral experience that people who stay angry can make their face fall. They go together. That is, if you live in anger, if anger becomes a way of life, your go-to response, you, you've given up hope. And, and your face will fall. You will have this cane-like expre- experience and expression of depression. It's, it's similar to, I've said this before, I think. I know I've said it to people. I don't know if I've said it from the pulpit, but... There are some sins you can engage that will make you stupid. Now, I'm not saying this demeaningly, but this is just factual. I have, I've seen some otherwise bright, intelligent people get really stupid in a certain sin course. And they go for this sin and they make decisions that everybody's looking at going, what in the world? Just as otherwise smart people can make themselves stupid and sin ongoing, you can make yourself depressed. I'm not giving you a clinical take here, you understand. You can make yourself depressed in this way of Cain through unresolved anger. If anger becomes your dominant mood, you give yourself over to it. You permit yourself a lot of anger. It becomes a way of life for you, a go-to response over and over and over again. You are continually angry about something. It signals you've lost hope if you ever had it. And that is a depressing state. Anger disproportional to offense, anger that ages with you and you become cantankerous and mad at the world, your your depression is very Cain-like. Some things we we can and should get angry about, yes, there is such a thing as righteous anger, but I've seen very little righteous anger in the church in my years. We're not built to live in anger. We're, you can't handle a steady stream of outrage. If you become absorbed into your anger, then hope goes into eclipse. You draw your identity from whatever it is that you're always living in reaction to. This is about the saddest reality I ever find in Christians. Because the person who's locked into their anger, they're the very one who can't see it. But everyone around them sees it. And tries to tell them. In Cain's case, he convinced himself he was excluded by God, an outsider looking in, and that he would always and only be that in God's estimation, though God spoke to him against that very reality, that it did not have to be. But that sense of exclusion had already lit the fuse, and it wasn't a long fuse. Ignited his anger. And the people I fear for the most are those who stay angry because they live in continual reaction to something they don't like. 
They're continually outraged over what they're against, and they pay for that relationally. You think because you're, you're not walking around kicking your dog, you can't be angry? You can be very good to your dog and very angry. The more right you tend to think you are, if you're always feeding on, this, this, is, this means I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, the angrier you tend to get. Anger and self-righteousness feed off of each other. They run neck and neck. They go proportional to one another. That's what we see in Cain, right? Verse 9. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Do you know what that's literally? Am I the keeper of the keeper? You're talking about the guy that keeps the sheep? Do I keep him? Is that my job? Is that my role now? You got another problem with me, God? Don't I have enough to do making the ground produce the ground you made? Don't I have to till that? What do you want from me, God? You want my brother? You made our father from the ground. I deposited my brother back there for you. And God says, verse 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Total irony for Cain, the worker of the soil, the ground tells on him. Cain knew that God knew what happened. This what have you done question, it is about killing Abel. What have you done with your brother? But it's also about the anger that set it up. How did you let yourself get this angry? How have you gotten this locked into your anger? What have you done, son? What have you done? Do you remember Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard, do not murder, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Do you know why he makes that connection? Because you read that, and if you're not used to it, and we get used to things, and they're tame, and we no longer feel the punch, you read that, you said that you don't murder. Okay, I've never murdered anybody. Well, have you been angry enough to? Maybe so, maybe, I don't know. And he says, well, if, if, if that's been the case, if you've been angry enough to kill, you're liable to judgment. Do you know why that is? Because Jesus understood something we have to understand. And the only way we learn this is by experience filtered through Scripture. If anger sets in on us like that, eventually it gets directed at God himself. If you stay angry at another person long enough, you will eventually, and you won't know when, but you'll just make the shift, and you'll make it very seamlessly, very easily, and suddenly, you're angry at God. Why haven't you changed this person? Why haven't you done what I need you to do? It happened for Cain. It will happen for you. Why isn't the nation any better off than it ought to be? <laughs> Why does this person get allowed to go to power? Why does this person get allowed to, to do this to my family? I'm not saying that we can't express anger and fear to God. Where else are you going to take it? You have to take it to God. You have to deal with it. You have to work through it. And some things we get angry about can take years to work through. Yes. But Cain shows us that we need Jesus. And you know why we need Jesus? Because we are on our own powerless to deal with the sin that crouches at our door and wants to have us. Who is going to kill that sin before it consumes us? 
How does Cain show us our need for Jesus? Who's going to put that anger fire in us out? Who's going to lift our face when it falls due to the fact that we continue to try to construct an identity for ourselves in things less than God, in people less than Jesus, and it doesn't work out for us, and we keep wondering why? The who is Jesus, the how is by his blood, our redemption. Faith matters because we believe in order to get Jesus, not heaven, Jesus. Jesus is there. Heaven is his abode. Heaven is is the finish line. It's when you get to be with him and your faith becomes sight. But now, Jesus at our door where the sin crouches. Now, Jesus in our hearts where the anger fire burns. Now, Jesus before our eyes. Larger and growing because I put so many others there to contend with and compare to. But no one ever bled for me but one. And no one can quiet the, the inner murmur and the outraging of resentments I stoke but one. And no one can fill the empty space where I feel my every lack but one. This is why faith matters. This is why faith is not just a simple transaction with God for heaven's sake. It is God building us in Christ. However we construct an identity, the cornerstone of that identity, the foundation upon which it's built, has to be the accomplishments of Jesus Christ on our behalf. This is what Cain shows us of our need for Jesus.